Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Open your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel 2, we just opened a series last week in the life of David. In 1981, Tom Petty, for those of you that have been around a while, called, he wrote a song called The Waiting. It describes a man separated from the woman he loves, and the chorus reads, The waiting is the hardest part. Every day you see one more card. You take it on faith, you take it to the heart, the waiting is the hardest part. That's true. Waiting is hard. And I've got to tell you, patience is not anywhere close to the top of my virtue list. My virtue list is very short, it disappears most weeks, and waiting never even made it into the top ten. So we're going to take a look at waiting in the life of King David. Right now in history, it's about 1011 BC, 1011 years before Christ. King Saul and three of his sons have just been killed by the Philistines on Mount Gilboa in northern Israel. God had told Saul, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of your hands. I'm going to give it to David because you have repeatedly disobeyed me. And he has now done that. David has been anointed king at 12 years old by Samuel. He's been in God's training program for over 15 years. Now, that's a long training program. To repeat high school 15 years in a row, that's what he's been doing. He's been, God has enrolled David in three different training schools we talked a little about last week. Training school number one, he was a shepherd in the fields from probably 8, 9, 10 years old till probably 17 or 18 he was an official in Saul's court. That was his second training classroom for three to four years. And finally, for over 10 years, he's been in God's training school called a fugitive and an exile in the, in the Negev, which is the southern part of Israel. David is now 30 years old as of now. And when you read 1 Samuel 16 through 2 Samuel 5, those chapters cover... David's path to the throne. He was anointed at 12. God said, you're the future king of Israel. But God never said when you're going to take over the kingdom. And God has made promises to us, a lot of them. But have you noticed that many promises that God makes to us, there's no date attached. We just have to wait on God's time. Now, David's path to the throne was not the fast lane on the freeway. It was more like a bumpy dirt road. There were potholes, twists, turns, U-turns, apparent dead ends, 15, 16, 17 years of delays. And most importantly, David's path to the throne had no road signs that said, here's where you're going, here's where you're going to turn left, here's where you're going to go right. How many of us, our journey through life, is like a bumpy road and there's no sign saying bridge out in 30 miles. 
right? There may be a bridge out in 30 miles, but you're not going to know there till you get there two and a half years from now. Most of us have been on that path, and many of us have run into roadblocks and bridge outs and dead ends, so the life of David can speak to us about that. This period of David's life, the school that he's been in, the school of waiting, has taken 15, 16, 17 years, and it's not been an easy time. It's a life filled of testing and troubles and trials, and most importantly, a long time. Here's our first principle today of today's lessons. God works on you while you wait on him. It's not about what you get, it's about who you become. God works on you while you wait on him. It's not about what you get, it's about who you become. It's important to realize that David's path to the throne is not at all unusual. God is eternal. God is not constrained by time. It's quite normal in the Bible when you read it to, to see that God promises things to people all the time and then has them wait for the promise to be fulfilled, sometimes for decades. God promised Noah there was going to be a flood. Did it arrive? It did, 120 years later. God promised Abraham, Abram, and Sarai when they, had, they were 75 and 65, you're going to have a son. How long do they wait? 25 years. 25 years. In order to marry the woman he loved, Jacob worked in the fields, no air conditioning, for 14 years. Wow. That's love, or stupid, one of the two. That's love, believe me. Before their exodus from Egypt into the promised land, the nation of Israel stayed in Egypt, a good chunk of it as slaves, for 430 years. That's a lot of waiting. In the Garden of Eden, God promised Adam, Eve and Satan, that he was going to send what? Messiah. Did Messiah come? Yes. Messiah was born in Bethlehem. In the fullness of time, God's time, God's perfect time, thousands of years later. That's a lot of waiting. Jesus came to Bethlehem, born, raised, Died for our sins, rose from the dead, back in heaven. How long ago? Over 2,000 years. We've been waiting for what? The second coming of our king. In God's plan, waiting is normal. I know you don't like to hear this. I really don't like to hear that waiting is normal. But that's reality. It comes under the sovereignty of God. Many failures in the Bible, incidentally, are directly related to failure to wait. The nation of Israel is at the bottom of Mount Sinai. Moses is going to the top of Mount Sinai to meet with God to get the Ten Commandments. He's not even gone 40 days before they do what? Build a golden calf, worship it, get crazy. Saul couldn't even wait seven days for Samuel to come back and offer the burnt offering. So Saul offers it himself. He violates God's command 
In direct disobedience, he offers it himself. In the Gospels, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, just before the cross. And he tells Peter, James, and John what? He says, watch and pray that you might enter temptation, right? He comes back and they are sleeping. And he says, Peter, couldn't you even watch one hour? Wow, not even one hour. I can relate to Peter. Try praying for one hour, just saying. So humans, we're usually in a hurry. We want it right now. Now, God is sovereign, and he has the ability to give it to us right now, whatever it is that we want. However, God often makes us wait. And the answer is, why does God make us wait? Well, quite often, it's because God's goals are different than our goals. Our goals are usually pretty simple. God, I want comfortable circumstances, right? Can you make that happen like now? And God's goal is completely different. God's goal is Christ-like character. I'm going to make you like Jesus. And God's going to make us more and more like Jesus. And that takes time. As a matter of fact, it takes a lifetime. We like microwave speed, right? And God operates on deep pit barbecue <laughs> speed. Or maybe crock pot speed. You look and you go, there's nothing happening, right? It's all in the ground, right? How many of you hate to wait? Yeah. You go to a restaurant and the line waiting to get your table is out the door and you really have conflict. One, the food must be good. I mean, everybody's waiting. But two, the wait is an hour. It's a conflict, right? You go see your doctor and the waiting room is jammed with people. And you go, oh boy, we get to wait for an hour and a half to see the doc, right? We want to see the doctor right now. Now, in, here's the good news. In God's economy, you never have to wait to see the great physician, right? When you pray, you have a direct line to God himself. And you know something? God never puts you on hold. Ever. However... Once God hears our prayer, and he hears all our prayers right away, he sometimes puts us in his waiting room. Or you could call it the wait room, wait training. Here's the principle. God's wait room is God's classroom. God's wait room, that's not on the screen, you can write it down though. God's wait room is God's classroom. God keeps us in his classroom until we have learned the lessons that he designed for us to learn. Our present circumstances are God's classroom. And you know what? We usually want to leave God's classroom as soon as possible. Because our circumstances are painful and troublesome and there's people in them we don't like to be with, etc., etc. See, we want God to change our circumstances and God wants to use our circumstances to change us. God's been, I mean, David has been in God's waiting room for over 15 years. And David struggled with God's timing in exactly the same way we do. David wrote in Psalm 13, verse 1 and 2, I can so relate to these verses. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? 
How long shall I take counsel of my soul, having sorrow in my heart all day long? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? David's being oppressed successfully, apparently, by an enemy, and it seemed to him like it's never going to end. And in two verses, four times, he says what? How long? How long will you forget me? How long will you hide from me? God, you disappeared. How long will I be in continuous pain? Can't you do something about my pain? How long will I be oppressed by the enemy? I'm under the thumb of this enemy and I can't seem to change it. And it goes on and on and on and on. David's tired of waiting. And so are we. Question. What are we waiting for? Many people are waiting for the wrong thing. Psalm 27, 14, David says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. He repeats it. Yes, wait for the Lord. Here's the principle. We wait for God to give us our wants. He makes us wait to give us himself. We wait for God to give us our wants. God, gimme, 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 right? Please do this, solve this, fix this, change this. He makes us wait to give us himself. God has promised David that he's going to be king over Israel. If being king was David's ultimate goal, he never would have waited 15 years to get it. If that was the goal he had, he would have taken the throne. But ultimately, David was not waiting to be king. Ultimately, David was waiting for the king, the king of kings. David was not clinging to God's promise. He was clinging to the promiser. He valued the God who made the promise more than the promise itself. See, David desired God himself more than he desired God's gift of becoming king. Being king was not the ultimate goal. Knowing God was the ultimate goal. David had learned to wait, not for what God was going to give him, but he learned to wait for God himself. And I think many, many times we struggle with waiting because we're waiting for God to do what we want him to do, right? And we say, God is not answering my prayer. Why do we say that? Because God is not giving me what I asked him. God is answering your prayer. That doesn't mean you're going to get what you asked. Because many times we don't ask wisely. We're like the two-year-old who says, that looks pretty good. And you say, no, no, that's rat poison, but that's interesting and I'm going to taste it. And you go, no, 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 that's rat poison. And you take it away and your two-year-old does what? Has a hissy fit, right? I mean, antifreeze is sweet. It is. But you probably shouldn't drink it because it will take your kidneys just right out of commission. So God knows what we need and he's only going to give us what we need. And the best thing God can give us is always himself. That is the greatest gift you can ever get from God is himself. We're impatient for God to give us what we want and he makes us wait in order to give us himself. Interesting, but it's always good to monitor your prayer requests. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with asking God to change your circumstances. There's absolutely nothing wrong with saying, God, can you please heal so-and-so? God, can you please soften the heart 
of my children. God, can you please solve the political acrimony? There's nothing wrong with any of that. Bring those before the Lord. But along with that, ask God to change you in the middle of your circumstances. Because the circumstances you're in are God's custom-designed classroom to teach you what he wants you to teach you. So if you say, God, I want to get out of the classroom, God says, you're not interested in learning the lessons I have, which means you must be smarter than me. The answer to that would be no. So don't be in a hurry to get out of God's weight room. It's where you're going to get your spiritual exercise. It's the place where God meets you, loves you, draws close to you, and changes you into the image of Jesus Christ. So now we're at 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, and it seems that after 15 years of waiting, David's going to finally be crowned king over all Israel. The tribe of Judah, the lower tribe, has just crowned him king over them, the southern tribe. However, David is still in God's waiting room. David doesn't know it right now. He's 30 years old, but it's going to be another seven and a half years before he's crowned king over all Israel. There's a rather large obstacle to David's rule, and his name is Abner. Abner was King Saul's cousin. Saul is dead now, but Abner is his cousin, and he was the commanding general of Saul's army. Abner's very much alive. He was Saul's confidant. He was Saul's cousin. He was a major influence on Saul's decisions. This guy, Abner, loved to be preeminent. He loved to be a power broker. He was a man of influence. He was a political military guy. And instead of supporting God's choice for king, David, Abner chooses the last surviving son of Saul named Ishbosheth, and he sets him up as a puppet king. The real power behind the throne in Israel is still Abner. Someone has said about Abner that he illustrates the proverb, he would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. And you know people like that, right? No matter what the deal is, they have got to be large and in charge. You know, the, it's always been said, so-and-so wants to be the biggest fish in the pond. There's a lot of ways to be the biggest fish in the pond. The easiest way is just shrink the pond. Some people are swimming in a thimble. They're the biggest fish in the pond. It's just a real small pond. So Abner, he wants to be in charge. It's interesting, Abner sets up this puppet king in Israel directly contrary to God's word because God told all of Israel years before David is going to be the king after Saul. But it's interesting what David does and what he doesn't do. David does not contest Ishbosheth's crowning. David doesn't set up a PR campaign and try and persuade all of Israel that God has really anointed me king and you should anoint me king too. Let's get on with it. God has anointed me 20 years ago with Samuel. Come on. He doesn't do a political campaign. He doesn't invade Israel and seize the throne by force. David submits himself to God's authority and whatever human authority God chooses to put in place, even if that human authority is not the ultimate plan. And that's good for us to remember. We look at the world today and we see people in power and we go, how did they get the office of fill in the blank? And there are people in power today around the world that are clearly not godly, clearly evil, but they serve under the sovereignty of God. Romans 13 tells us no authority is established other than what God establishes. 
So David believes that God will give him the throne when God is ready for him to receive it. He doesn't have to go grasp it. The two key actors in the drama today in 2 Samuel 3 are General Abner and General Joab. Rob's going to show you a map. <clears throat> After Saul dies, David's crowned over Judah, and these two generals are going to have a little battle to determine who's going to take over. Abner gathers his army. He's up in Mahanaim, which is on the east side of the Jordan, and he marches south and uh, west to Gibeon. David's commander is Joab. So we have two generals, Abner and Joab, and his troops meet Abner's army by the reservoir of Gibeon for a peace conference. Now remember, this is all walking space here. You're not going to drive, take a Humvee, take an aircraft. You're going to walk in sandals, right? So Abner's army has got to cross the Jordan River and travel south. David's army has got to travel north. And this reservoir of Gibeon is a rather large uh, place to store rainwater. It accesses the water table by means of an underground spring. Rob's going to show you a picture of this reservoir at Gibeon. This reservoir is a cylindrical shaft. It's about 37 feet in diameter. It's 35 feet deep, carved out of rock. It was dug sometime in the 12th century. So about a century, a century and a half before this time, this reservoir has been dug. And there's a spiral staircase inside the reservoir that goes down the shaft. And below this, you probably can't see it from here, there's another spiral staircase, another 79 steps all the way down to the spring. So there's an underground spring and they build this whole reservoir to get the spring water. Obviously, when you're in a desert climate, water is precious. Water is actually life. So they're having this peace conference around this reservoir and Abner, in, second, in the third chapter here, breaks off the peace talks and he proposes a contest of champions. Instead of everyone going to war, that could be pretty destructive, each side will choose 12 warriors. So Abner's army has 12 warriors, David's army has 12 warriors, and it's going to be a championship contest. Whoever wins out of those 12 and 12, that determines who's going to be the king. So if David's 12 kill Abner's 12, David's crowned king over Israel. If Abner's 12 beat David's 12, Abner is going to be in charge. Well, the problem is all 12 of them kill the other 12. So you got 24 dead people, and there's no contest at all. I mean, it's, it's, it's an open season. It's a draw. And uh, so actually what happens is the battle escalates into a full-fledged battle, and Abner gets badly beaten by David's troops. So Abner, the general of Israel, is retreating to the north, and Joab has a, has a brother, a younger brother named Azahel, and he runs like a deer, and he's chasing Joab. He wants the honor of killing Israel's general, right? And Abner tries to talk him into backing off twice. They're running along, and he says, back off, go get somebody else. Azahel runs very fast, and he's running right behind him. Abner has a spear in his hand, and the butt end of the spear is sharpened. You can throw it in the dirt like this. And he takes the spear and sticks it back. And it goes right through Azahel and out his back. Drops him in the path. He, Abner just pulls back and shoves the spear back and skewers him. Kills him. The sun goes down. Joab and his troops are chasing Abner. Abner gets on top of the hill and he says, let's call us battle off. Let's have a truce. And they call a truce. This little battle is pretty textbook. Here's how we get into fights. We have differences, right? And we try and talk those differences out. 
And if we can't talk doesn't work, what do we do next? We go to fighting, right? The fight, does fighting usually escalate? Often it does. You get personalities involved. So Azahel is going to take Abner. Abner defends himself, and we got a Hatfield and McCoy blood feud started. David's army's lost 20 troops. Abner's army's lost 360 troops. Pretty big differential. Turn to 2 Samuel 3, verse 1. It gives you the trend line of this battle. This covers seven and a half years, 2 Samuel 3, 1. Now, there was a long war, yeah, seven and a half years, between the house of David and the house of Saul. And David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually. And then you look at verse 2, and it has nothing to do with war. It has to do with wives and children. And it says, David marries more wives and has more children. And they give you kind of a little partial list there. In Deuteronomy 17, God had forbidden Israel's kings to multiply horses, to multiply silver or gold, or to multiply wives, because monogamy has always been God's design for marriage. However, in that era and that time and place, if you were a king acquiring a harem, was the prerogative of a king, and David followed the culture and not God. And we're going to find out in the next few weeks that this polygamy created decades of disaster. It really made the last 20 years of his life nothing but hell. It was utterly disastrous for him and his household. Northern tribes of Israel, David's busy making babies down south. General Abner in the north is making a power play. Go to verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, and Ishbosheth, he's the puppet king, says to Abner the general, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Now in the ancient Near East, this was a social structure, concubines were secondary wives or surrogate mothers that raised up heirs for the family if the wife was barren. They had lower social status than the wife, but they had legal protections, especially if they bore the king a son. Kings often had many such relationships. They were not approved by God. God was not in favor of concubinage or polygamy of any kind. But it was part of that culture at that point in time. And these harems passed from king to king to king. In other words, they were considered a prerogative of the king. And if you were the successor, you had responsibility for that harem. However, to have a sexual relationship with a concubine with a of a king was considered an act of treason you were considered to making a play for the throne at that point in time. So Abner is accused of having a dalliance with Rizpah, who is the concubine of King Saul, and Ishbosheth rightly says, you're making a pay for, play for the throne, because that's a treasonous act. It's interesting that it doesn't say whether Abner did or didn't, but it, the, the evidence seems, appears to suggest that he would have. And Abner loses his cookies, verse 8. Then Abner became very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father, 
to his brother and to his friends and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And yet today you charge me with a guilt concerning the woman. Verse 9, may God do so to Abner and more also, if as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul in the north and to establish the throne of David over all Israel and over Judah, even from Dan to Beersheba. That's from the way north to the way south. So the whole nation. And Ishbosheth could no longer answer Abner word because he was afraid of him. Here's the principle. God uses even our enemies to accomplish his plans for our lives. Wait on him and watch what he does. God uses even our enemies to accomplish his plans for our lives. Wait on him and watch what he does. So Abner doesn't confirm or deny the charges, but he's furious. He says, do you think I'm some contemptible traitor that's been bought and sold by Judah? I've shown you kindness. I have not delivered you over to King David as a prisoner. I made you king, and now I'm going to make David king. Abner thinks he's the kingmaker. He's the general here. And he's enraged, but he says something very interesting. He lets it slide that he has known all along that God's plan was for David to be king not Ishbosheth or anybody from the house of Saul. He knew the truth and he refused to obey the truth. And he said, well, why would somebody know the truth and not obey the truth? Well, in Abner's case, let's think about it. He's the general. He's the top dog in Israel's army. And by the way, David already has a commanding officer named Joab. So that means if David takes the throne, Abner's out of a job, right? By the way, Abner really loves this prestige as well. He thinks he's way too important to go into obscurity quietly. You need me. But Abner's not stupid. This is just power politics. He sees the handwriting on the wall. In the last battle he had with David, Abner's army got beat pretty bad. They lost 360 troops. David's army lost 20 troops. God had told David and the nation, David's going to be my choice of king. Abner sees the handwriting on the wall and he knows he can't win against David because he's got to fight God and you can't win against God. So now he does what? He wants to switch to the winning side, right? If you can't beat him, it's exactly right. He swears, I'm going to transfer the kingdom from Saul to David. He's a moral pragmatist. I'll use the name of God to support my cause, to support my own self-interest. What's David doing this whole time? David is waiting on the Lord and God is using David's enemy, Abner, to transfer the kingdom to David. Here's the point. You and I have situations in our lives. We have people in our lives. We have circumstances in our lives that are hostile, that are not optimal. And we think we have to get in there and clean house. We'd like to get in there and clean house. And sometimes God may be telling you that, but sometimes God may be saying, wait on me and I will take care of it. David is waiting on God and God is using his enemy, Abner, to make the arrangements for him to be king. I find that intriguing. I have found the hard way that when people attack you, you can defend yourself. 
How many of you have done that? I've also find that God can defend you. And God will do a much better job of defending you than you can do of defending you. Now, God will let you defend yourself. He will let you pull your sword and go whack away there and do blah, blah, blah. Or you can commit it to the Lord, wait on the Lord, and let him defend you. And he will take care of business far better than we can. Verse 12. Then Abner sent messengers to David in his place, saying, Whose is the land? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over to you. So Abner's now the diplomat. Abner makes an offer to David. He says, let's make a deal. You give me what I want, I'll give you what you want. I'll persuade all of Israel to follow my advice and make you king over Israel. And if you're David, you're saying, end of the civil war, no more bloodshed, that's a good thing. Verse 13. And David said, good, I'll make a covenant with you, but I demand one thing of you. You shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come see me again. Who's Michael? His first wife, David's first wife. David says, you want to do a deal? I got it, but you're going to bring me Michael. That was Saul's daughter. David fled for his life probably 12 years before he was married to Michael. Saul took his daughter, Michael, when David fled and gave her to another man. So she's married to two men at one time. Technically, David's haven't got a divorce, but he's fleeing for his life. So Saul gives her to another guy. He hasn't seen her in 10 years. He's been in southern on the Negev, fleeing for his life, running from Saul. And Michael's been married to another man. So David says, I want my wife back. He loved her. And on a political note, she was Saul's daughter. So if David made her his queen, it would make him much more acceptable to the northern tribes of Israel. So there's love here and there's also politics here as well. Let's get real. It usually is, right? When you read the history of the world, you see a lot of the political marriages. David was no different. He married way too many women, some of them for political reasons. And his son Solomon had hundreds of political marriages. The notion being, if you're married to my daughter, you probably won't invade my land because my grandkids are in your place. So it's a genteel form of hostage taking, right? The same. Been, been used for thousands of years. Verse 17. Now Abner had consultation with the elders of Israel, saying, In times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, Nike it. Just do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all our enemies. Here's the principle. As you follow God, he will show you when to wait and when to act. How many of you ever struggle with trying to discern, when should I sit and wait on the Lord and when do I need to kick this thing in high gear and roll it, right? Ever thought about that? As you follow God, he will show you when to put it in neutral and set the brake. And when he says, take the handbrake off, get this thing in low range and let's start pulling that stunt, brother. So Abner's the chief negotiator, and he's taken David's counteroffer back to the elders of Israel. He strongly recommends that they accept David as their king. 
He says, God himself promised that he was going to save Israel from her enemies, from David. So the leaders of Israel have been vacillating. Of course, Abner's a man of action. He tells them to just Nike this thing, just do it. The reality is Abner's still looking out for number one. If he persuades the northern tribes to accept David as king over them, you know what he wants? He wants a position in David's administration, right? Does this sound familiar? This is just normal power brokering, fallen human beings looking out for number one. Abner's looking out for number one, and God's using Abner's self-desire, self-centeredness to accomplish his goal of getting David on the throne. Last week, we spent a fair amount of time talking about whether or not you're for God or against God, you're going to do what God wants you to do. End of story. If God can use Satan to accomplish his purposes, he sure can use sinful people to accomplish his purposes. Verse 20, then Abner and 20 men came with him, came to David at Hebron, and David made a great feast for Abner, and the men were with him. Abner said to David, let me arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king. And he made a covenant, that's a peace treaty, and you may be king over all that your soul desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went away in peace. So Abner and David declare a ceasefire. No more civil war between the north and the south. We're going to have a feast to celebrate it. Abner calls David my lord the king, which means he's submitting to David. And as far as David and Abner are concerned, the war is over. And we're going to unify these tribes around David as king. However, there's a little problem. The war is not over as far as David's general is concerned. And his name is Joab, verse 24. Then Joab came to the king and he said, what have you done? Abner came to you. Why have you sent him away and he's already gone in peace? You know Abner, the son of Ner. He came to deceive you and to spy on you and to learn of your going out and coming in to find out all that you're doing. Joab is not ready for the war to be over. He hates Abner because he killed his little brother. He does distrust his intentions. Here's Joab's thinking. If Abner brokers this peace deal and brings the north and the south together and David is king, David's going to feel obligated to Abner. If David's obligated to Abner, what happens to Joab's career? Huh, he might not be commanding general anymore. Maybe Abner will take his job. We got a little self-interest going on here. That's not the only reason Joab does not want peace. Joab wants revenge. His little brother got killed in wartime by Abner. Joab wants his hide. It's fascinating that God accomplishes his purpose despite the political power plays of mankind. Verse 26. Joab came out from talking to David. He sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the well of Sarah, but David didn't know it. So Joab does this on the sly. He doesn't tell his king what he's doing. Verse 27, Abner returned to Hebron. Joab took him aside in the middle of the gate to speak with him privately and shanked him. That's the street term. In the fifth rib. The fifth rib is right over the heart. <laughs> Daggered him, right? Struck him in the belly so that he died on the account of blood of Azahel, his brother. So Joab sends messengers secretly to bring Abner back. They might have told Abner, well, David wants Joab and Abner to have a conversation about how you're going to do this peace deal and how you're going to bring all these things back together. And Abner lets his guard down and Joab kills him. 
And this is premeditated murder, planned in detail. Here's the problem. It happens in a city of refuge. For those of you that don't know much about Israel's history, when God parceled the land out, he said there's going to be three cities of refuge on the east side of the Jordan River, three cities of refuge on the left side of the Jordan River. If you accidentally kill somebody, this is not homicide or murder, it's, in, it's, it's involuntary, it's accidental manslaughter. You, you were cutting down a tree and your axe head came off and whacked somebody and killed them, that's accidental. Well, in that era, the court of justice was, there were twofold. One, there was an avenger of blood, which means the closest relative would revenge, take vengeance on the person that killed their family member. So the city of refuge was a place where if you were guilty of accidental death, you could run to that city and you had refuge there until a proper court could be tried could be established. So it was a city of refuge. It was a safe place. Joab violated that law and killed Abner in a city of refuge contrary to the law. I find it interesting that David is very willing to wait on God. Joab is not willing to wait on God at all. Joab took revenge in his own hands. The other part of the problem is Abner had killed Joab's brother in self-defense during wartime. It's now peacetime, and he kills him in peacetime inside a city of refuge. How many of you heard the phrase, what goes around comes around? In a few years, Joab will get his. He's going to get killed by Benaiah, and he's going to get killed at the altar of burnt offering inside the tabernacle, which is also a place of refuge. What goes around? comes around. Verse 28. David hears of this and he says, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Nur. Verse 37. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the will of the king to put Abner, the son of Nur, to death. And if you jump all the way over to 5.3, we've got another little insurrection, and David takes care of that. But 5.3 is the summary of this section of Scripture. It says, So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and they anointed King David, king over all Israel. Here's the principle. <clears throat> when you wait on God, he gives you what he wants you to have when he wants you to have it. When you wait on God, he gives you what he wants you to have when he wants you to have it. So David's been waiting on the Lord now from the time he was 12. He's now 37 and a half. He's waited not just uh, till 30. At age 30, he was crowned king over just Judah. Seven and a half years later, Murders, political intrigues, uprisings, all sorts of power plays. He's now established as king over all Israel. He's 37 and a half years old. He was anointed probably at 12. He's waited a quarter of a century to take the throne. And he's been comfortable doing that. It's not been easy. It's been very difficult. He thought he was going to die on dozens and dozens of occasions. But after 20 plus years of waiting, God anointed him king over Israel. He didn't grab what God was going to give him. He let God put it in his hands. How many of you have things in life you really want? 
I mean, you really want. It's terribly easier to go grab them and just take them as opposed to saying, Lord, you will give into my hand what you want me to have and when you want me to have it. And I don't know if it's a promotion. I don't know if it's more money. I don't know if it's a better spouse. That's supposed to be a joke. Yeah, those of you that are looking for a better spouse, so is your spouse. Just saying. Whatever it is that you think you want, whatever it is that you want to grasp, David could have grasped the throne. He had opportunities to kill Saul twice. He chose to pass. He was going to wait for God to give him what he wanted to give him when he wanted to give it to him. And I think that gives us tremendous peace because God knows what we want and God knows what we need. And God will always give us what is best. Oftentimes we want what is not best. It just looks good at the time. Okay, Tom's going to come up, but let me go ahead and give us a review just so you have the points down. God works on you while you wait on him. Of course, we don't want to wait on him because we don't want him to work on us, right? It's not about what you get. It's about who you become. We talked about monitoring your prayer life. Don't just ask God to change your circumstances. Ask God to change you through your circumstances. We wait for God to give us our wants. He makes us wait to give us himself. Number three, God uses even our enemies to accomplish his plans for our lives. Wait on him and watch what he does. Number four, as you follow God, he will show you when to wait and when to act. And how many of us would look at that and say, Brad, I don't have any problem with acting. I can put this thing in overdrive. I can put the pedal to the metal. We can take care of business. We can lock and load with the best of them. The issue is waiting is much harder for us than taking action. But until we follow the Lord and he says act, we'll probably do the wrong thing when we act. So almost always wait first. Pray first always. And lastly, um, when you wait on God, he gives you what he wants you to have and when he wants you to have it. And is his desire for your life more accurate than yours? Always. Amen. I love you all. Because I love you, now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.